are listening to another episode of the Coach's Circle Podcast, brought to you by LifeCoachPath.com. Our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching, wellness, and mental health. Each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own. For more information on who we are and what we do, visit www.lifecoachpath.com. And now, here's your host, Brandon Baker. Hello again, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's guest on the show is Dr. William DeFore. He is a licensed professional counselor, coach, and author located in Denton, Texas. He is also the creator of the Good Finding newsletter, found at goodfinding.com. So, hi, Dr. DeFore. How are you? Hi, Brandon. I'm doing well. Perfect. So, well, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, I want to first start us off by giving listeners just a background of you know, who you are, your practice, and the kinds of clients that you typically see on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Um, well, my academic background is I have a bachelor's in sociology, a master's in clinical psychology, and a PhD in counseling. And um, over the years, I've been in practice since I received my master's degree. And I... Uh, so it's over 40 years I've been doing this. And as my practice has evolved, count, uh, coaching has become more and more of a part of what I do and more and more of a part of the common vernacular in terms of what clients are seeking. And, and so I have clients asking about coaching and wanting coaching almost as frequently as they do about asking about counseling. So that evolution from counseling into coaching has been ongoing. And yet still today, I would say primarily I am doing counseling. Um, so that, that's a kind of a broad overview. Right. Okay, perfect. So I just want to dive a little deeper into that evolution you mentioned from counseling to coaching. So were there any specific examples with clients that made you think, okay, I need to expand my toolbox as a professional to include coaching? Um, So was it specific clients that made you make that transition? Or was it just kind of like a general realization that, okay, this method also might be helpful for some clients that I'm seeing? It's a really good question. It, It did primarily, it has primarily uh, been an evolution in the process of helping individual clients. You know, many clients come to someone like myself because they have a big problem and they want to solve that problem. And when they feel that that problem has been resolved, they're done and they go away and, and, you know, don't no longer seek my services. Other clients, however, will come in with presenting problems, but then they sense that there's something more and they transition in their own goals and their own uh, purpose from solving problems to reaching goals. Um, I've worked with some very high level individuals who did perhaps initially start out with maybe depression or marital problems or anxiety. And by the time we got further along in their journey, we were working on professional development 
working towards financial abundance, um, trying to evolve their own consciousness and awareness to higher levels, to be in a more consistently elevated emotional state, which of course is a benefit to to physical health and, and overall well-being and good decision making and that kind of thing. And that's actually quite honestly the most rewarding work I do is when I can work with really high level, brilliant individuals who are talking to me for the purpose of enhancement, personal and professional enhancement, not just problem solving. Right, right. So clearly in your practice, you're able to fuse the therapy approach with the coaching approach. And as you just mentioned, with some clients, even even within one client, you're able to use both of these methods and techniques to help them achieve their goals. So yes. I wanted to follow up a little bit on that very topic because some coaches, especially those who might be listening to the podcast, some aspiring coaches might be thinking, well, don't I have to choose one or the other? Because counseling is not coaching and coaching is not counseling. And they they have very different, um, well, they have very different ethical considerations, uh, even very different legal considerations. And obviously the techniques are very different, um, you know, Counseling is typically seen as looking backward, um, not in any pejorative sense, but looking backward in your life and trying to come up with what might be some of the antecedent reasons for for some blocks or um, you know difficulties that the client is facing today versus coaching is seen as looking forward. So what I wanted to ask you was, you know, do you feel that combining both approaches has been an overall benefit? Um, to your practice and 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 why would that be do you think well uh, I'll give you kind of a humorous analogy you're asking somebody who's been living in the forest all of his life what would it be like to live outside the forest <laughs> <laughs> touche <So>, okay oh <laughs> uh, this is all I know I've I'm a counselor that has evolved into coaching and um, so i I see them as being on a continuum and it would be hard for me to talk about some talk as someone who has only done counseling or who has only done coaching. It's a continuum. And as I mentioned with some clients, it's a very smooth and natural progression. One other thing I would say about that, Brandon, is that when I'm working with a, a client who doesn't just want the pain to stop, like with her counseling issue, but they want tools for going forward and preventing their part of causing that pain. I'm, I'm all about teaching people individual responsibility, helping them out of the victim role. And so I give them tools so that when they're no longer talking to me, they will have those tools available to them going forward to prevent the reoccurrence of those issues that they came in to address in the first place. So, there is some forward movement in a normal counseling process. And I'm certainly not the only counselor that, that does that. So there's that connection. I think the specific thing about coaching is if, if this is what I would see as a purely coaching relationship. And I have had a little bit of experience with this, but not much where someone comes in at a high level, they want to reach some goals. They, they're running into some obstacles at work 
but they respond quickly and effectively to all of the interventions, all of the techniques and the tools that I provide them. They get it and they apply it and they have success. In other words, they don't have subconscious issues that are blocking their forward movement. I have also had people come in calling what the services that they wanted coaching and needing tremendous counseling mm-hmm. because they're, all of their goals, they were stymied in their efforts to break through the barriers. And so in order to help them, we went into the subconscious processes, which is really more about counseling and help them remove the subconscious barriers that are interfering with their conscious goal achievement. Okay. So actually, I wanted to pick up right on that. You mentioned sometimes clients come in for coaching, but in fact, what they really need first is counseling. So in order to actually identify that, do you offer any kind of, um, I guess, intake questionnaire? or how, What is your approach for identifying which clients actually need to take a step back and focus on counseling first? Well, I don't have a formal process, meaning I don't have a questionnaire that I utilize. It's every individual comes in with different um, readiness and willingness to reveal. In other words, someone might come in and they're like, if you imagine them holding out that this is my issue or this is my goal. And the, the real issue and the real goal is something that's in the background and either they don't know about it or they're not willing to face it yet. So through the process of communication, first few sessions, it begins to become evident to me, what is the real issue? What do they really want to accomplish? What's really going on with this person? Um, I mean, I've had people come in and say, I, I want to improve my professional relationships. And it turns out that their marriage was about to end. Hmm. And that, that's what, what they really needed and wanted. Right. But for some reason, they came in with a completely different issue. So it, it's a series of interviews, basically, in the early sessions that would help me understand what it is that they're looking for, what they really need. And I have not had anyone, by the way, come in with a kind of a coaching agenda unwilling to do the deeper counseling work. My, my approach is very positive. It's very forward looking. I'm not interested in, in dwelling on or, or wallowing around in old stuff. You know, it's like get in there, get it done and get on with it is my whole approach but I have some very, very effective tools for helping people do exactly that. Right. Now, if someone is deeply disturbed, you know, make no mistake, someone has deep unresolved issues, the therapy is profound, it's, it's deeply emotional, and it's not coaching <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. However, depending on the motivation and the desires of that individual, they may choose to come out of that and go into coaching. Right. And what you're highlighting right there is kind of the answer to my previous question, the benefit of having both tools at your disposal. Because mm-hmm. what do you do if, you, if you're if you a coach, just purely a coach? You don't have any um, you know, psychotherapeutic uh, training of any kind. And I've spoken to a lot of coaches that fit this description. 
you know, what do you do when you have a client who clearly needs to first reach baseline before they're able to reach that next level, by which I mean some kind of therapy? What do you do? I mean, all you can do really is you can refer them out to somebody that you know, and then maybe once they complete that that process, that might take a long time, then they can come back to you to eventually tackle whatever challenge they're they're looking to um, you know overcome. But yeah, uh, clearly from what I'm getting from what you're saying, it, it definitely helps to have both backgrounds so that you can yes. you know apply them with the clients on an as-needed basis. I, I agree, and yet I would also comment that um, most of what I do with my clients now did not come from academic training. It's more life experience. And the reason I'm saying that is that some coaches, because you know there's a huge population of what we're talking about as coaches, right? There some people that are very much beginners and, and just learning the tools and techniques, but other people come in with a tremendous amount of skill and knowledge and background. I would suggest that some coaches, depending on their, their maturity and their life experience and their own wisdom, they wouldn't necessarily be doing therapy, but part of the beauty of the internet and the accessibility to information now today is that someone with the desire to learn can learn some, some therapeutic techniques and approaches and apply them in the context of coaching. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's in, in the least inappropriate. I don't think it's unethical and it certainly isn't illegal. Um, so if, according to the comfort level of the coach, if they want to, if they, they realize my client is having this issue, I'm going to research some approaches to helping my client deal with that. If I feel comfortable and confident in the implementation of those, those techniques and processes, then I'm going to try to help my client through that as an alternative to referring the client out. And the reason I, I emphasize that, Brandon, is that I'm not, even though I've got all of the degrees and the credentials, you know, that qualifies me as a professional counselor. I'm not a big believer in the academic component of preparation. I am a believer in life experience and maturity and awareness on the part of the individual. And that is not something you learn in school. Um, so I hope that's, that's sure. helpful. With yeah, you. absolutely. And actually you're, you're speaking on something that from what from previous conversations I've had with coaches, some coaches haven't had any kind of formal coaching education whatsoever, much less any kind of psychotherapy training or education. Um, some coaches that I've spoken to are 100% completely guided by personal experience, which there's a lot of debate out there. And I know that the ICF is doing their best to make sure that coaching as a whole has some kind of, you know, um, ethical, you know, guardrails where basically there is a limit to, um, or not so much a limit, but there are certain guidelines and certain, you know, science-based techniques that should be at the forefront of what coaching is instead of just a complete wild west kind of environment where you can just kind of do anything you want. Um, yeah. and so I hear what you're saying and I, I think you're right that, 
the majority of a coach's wisdom really is going to come from that personal experience slash their own interaction with clients. But what would you say to a coach who might be listening, a prospective coach who might be listening, who says, you know what, I completely agree. I'm going to just skip the whole training part altogether because I've, I've heard this. What might right. you say to that kind of mentality? I would say that's not a wise move. I think regardless of who you are, regardless of what your background is and the life experience you have, the confidence level you have, the, the effectiveness you've already experienced, you will benefit from training. I've benefited from my academic training. I have not stopped my training. I'm always learning and growing and developing new techniques. And I do my continuing education processes on a continual basis. So, yeah, why pass up that opportunity? And in light of what you were saying about ICF, trying to provide some consistency and some uniformity over across the board, of course, that that makes perfect sense. And so I'm not suggesting that, yeah, you know, you're you're either going to be good or you're not. Just get out there and give it your best shot. I don't. That's not what I'm suggesting. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that ultimately, and, and this is based on a study that was I remember reading about and learning about in in school way back. That it's not the technique that determines the effectiveness of the work that of, of the outcomes of a, of a therapist. This was a study done with psychologists and therapists. It's not the technique, it's the person. So that's my, my point of emphasis here. But that being said, training is always a good idea. Right. Learning is always a good idea. So by all means, I think that coaches should be trained and certified. I think licensing is a good thing. Um, Perfect. But a, a license doesn't mean you're a good counselor. Or, right. You know, <laughs> doesn't mean you're a good coach, right? It's a necessary but not sufficient condition for... Very, very well said. Yeah, for very being well effective. Said, yeah. All yeah. right. Great. Uh, I just wanted to... I knew that was going to be your answer. I just wanted to ask the question because I have heard it said and... It kind of boggles my mind a little bit how some coaches can think that just, and yes, some of them have gone through truly traumatic experiences and found their way out of it. I mean, I don't mean to take anything away from from some of the stories that I've heard, but I, I struggle to understand how that can be enough, how they think that can be enough, because the truth is everybody processes experiences differently, even if it's the same experience. You know, mm-hmm. person A experiencing this will process it very differently than person B. And right. I think it takes more than just my own my own experience of, you know, overcoming this, you know, Herculean obstacle to be able to help others do the same. You know, it's it's right. not it's yeah. not enough. Yeah. And then and since you made that point, Brandon, I I just want to follow along with what you're saying that an individual, a coach's personal trauma, whatever they've overcome, overcoming an addiction, that is a very limited set of tools, knowledge, and understanding that is based on that issue and that recovery process. That's not broad enough to to implement and utilize. As a matter of fact, what it creates is a set of filters 
through which this coach would view all clients. In other yeah. words, and I'll, I'll, I'll make a reference back to early in my career, back when I was working in hospitals a lot, there was a psychologist who diagnosed 90% of his patients with multiple personality disorder. Oh, gosh. I know. And it's like, <laughs> and I, you know, I interfaced with some of those people and they, they did not have that. That diagnosis doesn't even exist anymore. Now it's dissociative disorder, but that, that risk, you know, someone who is a victim of child abuse thinks that all of their clients. Is were, it this classic projection? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Projection based mm -hmm. on individual biases and personal filters. It's a high risk of someone coming out of their own healing and recovery process to, to be biased in the, in that regard. So that was where training is essential. I wouldn't say it's less important. If, if you've been through trauma and survived, I'd say it's more important. Right. Yeah. That's a, it's a really, really good point. How it actually personal experience, if left alone can actually limit your understanding of, yes. of human yes. nature and not expand it. So I, because of the very reasons you just said, so yeah. Um, yeah. Perfect. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit to a more positive note. Um, so the, one of the reasons why I found your work intriguing is your is your Good Finding uh, newsletter. I wanted to give you the chance a little bit to expand on the philosophy behind that and how that came about and um, what kind of work you're doing in that regard today. Okay. Um, thank you for asking about that. It's my absolutely favorite topic. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, as you're, I'm sure, aware, a lot of people are aware that historically psychology kind of tried to emulate medical science. And it was based on a, a series of diagnoses of what's wrong yeah. and how do we fix it. And what that did is it created a negative bias um, so that it was sort of a, a bad finding thing. Right? It's like, what's wrong? <laughs> right. I rem remember studying in psychology, taking abnormal psychology. There was nothing about normal psychology. There was nothing about what makes a person healthy. So what's beautiful about current developments is that positive psychology has become a very, very strong field of study. I understand that it, it's one of Harvard's most popular courses being taught. Um, there's a dark Dr. Martin Seligman is kind of the founder of yeah. positive psychology, but there are many, many other people who utilize that also emotional intelligence. So in my study and reading and development about emotional intelligence and positive psychology, and I've just always been a very naturally positive and optimistic person. I developed this term and it's actually trademarked good finding as a way of pointing to an activity of the human mind that is not instinctive and yet tremendously powerful and uh, innovative and creative. So the instinctive activity of the human mind is like the traditional psychology. What's wrong? How do we fix it? So the instinctive reptilian limbic system of the brain looks at What's the problem? What's the pain? Where's and how do we fix that pain? Whereas the higher brain function kicks in when we start looking at the bigger picture and looking at the strengths and the assets 
and what's good and what's right and what's working. In other words, good finding activates the higher brain function, which also activates vision forward looking. So the three practices that are incorporated within good finding are gratitude for the past, looking at the past and deriving all the good and the value from that that you can, appreciation of the present, looking at the present moment, being in the present moment, like Eckhart Tolle's teaching is very, very powerful for that and the power of now. And then an optimism, going to the future, mm-hmm. activating the visioning component, the prefrontal cortex, the forward-looking part of the brain, whereas and all of the, the therapeutic and, and coaching tools, this is a great example of a tool that can be both therapeutic and coaching, which is mental rehearsal. That is seeing yourself performing an activity that you want to perform, seeing your idealized version of yourself in the future and connecting an emotional state with that greatly activates the potential for accomplishing it. So in essence, good finding is two ways of defining it overall. One is focusing on finding and focusing on what is good, right, and working about yourself and the world around you. And also it is the practice of gratitude for the past, appreciation for the present, optimism about the future. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's all beautiful. And you're actually now bringing up a lot of ideas that are kind of in my um, sphere of of interest as well, because so I, I went to Penn and I, I took the positive psychology class with um, Dr. Angela Duckworth, and uh-huh. she trained under Marty Seligman. Um, and so this is at a time when when positive psychology was really starting to take off. And I remember you're exactly right. Like, I, I remember the atmosphere in the room was very it felt like something new and important was happening. Um, yeah. And because it was. And I think yeah. it's I think it's exactly for the reason that you said, which is, I'll put it in my own in my own words, I guess, um, our evolutionary kind of setup is is meant to seek out danger, what's wrong, what can be better. Right. I mean, if you right. if you were to create, if you were to create beings that were solely there to to create progeny, which is essentially what evolution says in so many words. That is how you would create them. Why waste time on happiness? That's not going to make you more successful from an evolutionary standpoint. You're better off just worrying all the time and finding what's wrong so you can try to fix it. Um, there's like that famous business quote, only the paranoid survive. Well, um, that's kind of the way evolution set us up. You know, we have to. Yeah. And this is where all this negativity comes from. And and I think what you're alluding to is one of the most powerful things a person can do, which is actively understand how you're set up and kind of fight against it a little bit. You know, it's you don't just succumb to whatever you were designed, quote unquote designed, whatever you take that word to mean, but whatever you were evolutionarily designed to be. Um, let's step back a little bit and say, well, no, we don't have to be subject to this um natural disposition we can try to find the good and i think i think what you're alluding to is exactly that um and it it reminds me of one of my favorite kind of different but related uh phrases that you hear sometimes which is you know comparison is the thief of joy and i i think in this case it's not so much comparison to other people 
it's comparison to what things could be, I guess. And yeah. um, and that's the primary practice that I, I feel like it would be healthy for us to not necessarily get rid of totally, but maybe tone down a bit because it doesn't have to constantly be this barrage of, you know, bad finding, as you would put it. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that primitive uh, problem-focused task orientation, that's, which basically dominates most of human consciousness most of the time, which is why there is so much depression, anxiety, and frustration in the world, it's because people are living in that problem-focused task orientation mode, modality. It's not ever going to go away. It's a, it's a necessary part of who we are, yep. but if it predominates, it's literally a joy thief, to go back to your, to your quote. It mm -hmm. steals our joy. And when we activate those higher brain functions and we start looking around at all the beauty and the blessings and the joy and the, and the innovation and the creativity and the, the, the fantastic goodness in this world, and like with your own human body, looking at all of the things that are working, the things that are functioning very well and always have, that activation of that higher brain function that shifts your focus in that direction, it puts those primitive functions into proper place. It puts them into the background. They're still there so that if some threat shows up, you can still activate and respond to it in an appropriate manner, but they're not consuming the right. consciousness of the person. Right. Actually, so um, we're almost out of time, but I can't help myself because this is a topic that I, I really want to stress more and more in my discussions with coaches. The question I wanted to ask you related to this good finding concept is in your experience with your clients, um, or even just in, in your own personal thoughts, what, what do you feel is the most effective way for a person to enact that habit, that good finding habit? Because you're right, it is counterintuitive in a very real, deep-seated sense. Mm -hmm. um, so how can a person most effectively um, kind of turn things around instead of finding the bad, finding the good, and create that that ritual on a day-to-day -day basis to the point that it's natural at a certain point. What kind of practices can a person engage in to reach that? Just like with physical fitness, a sedentary habitual lifestyle that does not promote health and well-being is the default. It's, it's automatic. You don't have to get up in the morning and <laughs> decide that you're not going to exercise. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's that, but you do have to decide that you are going to exercise. And the same thing is true for the mental process, the mental and emotional activation of the higher brain functions and the positive uh, affective components of life that make it fun and enjoyable and, and, act, and bring up enthusiasm and excitement for of all of your tasks, you know, so that you literally have a, a joyful experience in the world. That requires practice and it requires a diligent effort, just like a physical workout. You have to have a mental and emotional workout. My wife and I get up every morning and if the weather is anywhere near decent, we sit outside and we journal. And the, the journaling practice that I recommend is basically the good finding journaling practice. I recommend gratitude for the past, looking at your past experience and all of the, the lessons and the things that have brought you to where you are 
and appreciation for the present, what's good and work right and working about right now, and optimism for the future. That's where you're doing mental rehearsal for the upcoming meeting that you're going to have or the, the new goals of, of physical fitness that you're setting for yourself or the new professional or financial goals that you're setting for yourself. So it can be near or far in the future in that optimism component. But that is a retraining of the brain process. You're not retraining necessarily. It's more of a an activation of those higher brain functions. And through, just like with physical fitness, you get to where you like it. You don't have to make yourself do it because it feels good to be physically fit. And so your exercise is a fun part of your day. Then you've crossed that barrier, right? You've, you're in the mode and it, you've got that momentum working for you. Same thing is true of the positive, but just like with physical fitness, you can't stop. Yeah. Just because you're in great shape today doesn't mean you can stop and be in good shape two months from now. Mm -hmm. You got to keep at it. And the same thing is true for the mental and emotional practice. It does get easier as you go. And yet persistence and consistency is essential. Perfect. So I, I guess in a word, think of joy as a muscle that you have yes. to work at. Perfect. Yeah. I think that's that's a really... Um, interesting way of putting it. I think it's something people can understand. You know, how do you, yeah. how do you find more joy in life? That seems like a such a huge and bewildering topic. But if you just simply reframe that question to, well, you know what? Think of finding joy. Th th think of the ability to find joy as a muscle that you need to work out every day. And I think a lot of mental heuristics that people already understand about physical fitness will easily um, be able to replace some of the concepts we have about. Um, I guess, mental fitness, like joy and good finding, as yeah. you put it. So, right. Yeah, perfect. All right. Well, that that was really informative. I, I think our listeners are going to really appreciate your perspective. Um, so to, to finish us off, can you just give our listeners an idea of where they can find you and um, your website, any social media that people can learn more about you? Yes, there's uh, uh, goodfinding.com is the, uh, my, one of my primary websites. Also, there's a Good Finding Facebook page. I have a, not, not all that active on Twitter, but I do have a, a Twitter presence. And I, earlier in my career, I developed a, an approach to anger management that is actually a fairly positive approach to that. I have a website called uh, angermanagementresource.com, all one word, no punctuation. And then all anger, also anger management resource Facebook page. So for people that are having issues more in the, the negative emotion, they're feeling stuck and repetitively caught in those patterns that there's that. But for the people who specifically want to activate and build their their positive emotional state on a consistent basis, then that's what good finding is designed to do. Perfect. All right. Well, anybody listening, go ahead and sign up for the Good Finding newsletter. I think uh, we need more of that in the world. And, um, and Dr. DeFore, I really appreciate your time today. That was really great. You bet. It's my pleasure, Brandon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.